Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Igor Kufayev, an artist, Advaita Tantra master, and founder of the Flowing Wakefulness community. For over a decade, Igor Kufayev has been serving as a conduit of transmission for awakening towards the new era of heart-centered consciousness. Speaking from direct realization of oneness, he inspires all seekers of truth to recognize the fullest potential present in human birth. Many have been touched by grace and awakened in his presence as he continues working towards building a global community to serve as a container for exploring possibilities for alternative consciousness-based culture. <clears throat> his involvement with sacred tradition expresses itself not only in scriptural exposition and metaphysical discourse, but also as non-intellectual heart-based illumination. Though his methods are rooted in Shaiva Tantra, Igor remains elusive to categorization, maintaining that tradition is not a set of esoteric teachings and techniques, but a vibrant field of energy enlivened in the hearts of those who go through this transforma transformative process firsthand and bring these teachings to life. With a dedicated team of companions, Igor is working on creating centers for spiritual regeneration as facilities for research in consciousness with bases in Europe, California, and British Columbia. Traveling extensively with the programs mainly offered in North America and Europe, Igor currently resides in Mallorca, Spain. He lives with his partner, Amrita Ma Devi, and their two children, daughter Ramana and son Keanu. Vamadeva, from Sanskrit, the preserving aspect of Shiva in his peaceful, graceful, and poetic form, is Igor's spiritual name. So hello, Igor. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hello, Jacob. It's lovely to be here with you. It's really a pleasure to talk to you. I've, I've been enjoying um, listening to podcasts that you've been interviewed on and also reading some of the interviews and written work um, that you've done. And it's been really beautiful. Uh, as someone who is also a follower of the Shaiva Tantra path, <clears throat> it's always um, wonderful to meet a new teacher. So, so I'm excited to talk to you today. Um, <clears throat> so to get started, I just wanted to as I was listening to the Buddha in the Gas Pump podcast, you go to great lengths to talk about your um, your personal story and what um, and the various steps along your path that led you to this work. And so, you know, I would direct anybody obviously to that podcast as a great um, as a great resource for learning more about you and that and that and the and that story. But I was wondering if you could maybe give us a little bit of the abridged version of that. And and specifically, you know, you talk a lot of it about in that interview about how you know, you had these experiences, but of course you didn't have any vocabulary to talk about them. And then, you know, over time, you know, you found the tantric teachings. So I'd love to hear that story of how you went from this kind of vocabulary-less experience of, uh, or experiences of illumination, and then how you sort of discovered and moved into this more um, tantric understanding that maybe added a new layer of that experience for you. Sure. Well, um, I was hoping that we can somehow avoid going into the biographical details, but I guess this is this is uh, unavoidable. So I'll try to be as concise as as possible. Um, it's actually not uncommon among those who have claimed that they had major breakthroughs in any way from major shift in consciousness to transformation that upon and shortly after that shift there were also 
very interesting memories where in fact we knew ourselves to be just that mm. and these memories very often belong to the earlier phase of our lives some of them could be in our childhood some of them could be in our teenage years or if that happens in someone's uh, life later on these moments of being essentially um, tuned or in sync with the entire pace in, of creation, um, poetically expressed very often by uh, those verses we admire, whether this is from Rumi, or Hafiz, or speaking of Sufi uh, literature, if we bring someone like Yeats or um, some of the you know English classics of those who have been like even you can read that in in the early poetry of Keats you know that connectedness let alone William Blake this kind of references to the childhood references to the moments when we knew ourselves as this present moment so I would like to take this opportunity uh, rather than recycling what I have already done many times and Buddha the cast interview is not the only one there are conscious TV interviews and there are other radio interviews uh, where I have spoken in great depth uh, about biographical details of where I grew up and how and so forth and my career as an artist and so so forth. Interest in lives, all the ups and downs, the tragedies that inevitably were faced along with glory of being alive. What I'd like to uh, perhaps bring is that additional element that a realization brings about a very interesting uh, moment that everything was indeed that. Mm. So in other words, it's not an additionally added uh, kind of uh, realization. It's not an additionally added level of consciousness. I hope we can speak later on about uh, different, uh, let's say, experiences that uh, characterized these breakthroughs. But one very significant uh, realization is that actually we do know ourselves. Mm. I would even emphasize that there is not a single living being, if he or she is conscious, does not know that connectedness. But what perhaps escapes us here is that the rarity of that experience or perhaps the fragmented nature of otherwise our mundane experience, this waking, dreaming, deep sleep, where consciousness collapses and breaks down. So the continuity is broken down. And we accept that as a matter of fact. And we accept that as our reality. So those moments when we are tapped into this flow, simply perhaps go unnoticed, if you see what I mean. Yeah. <clears throat> well, how could they not go unnoticed if, you know, <clears throat> if we're if we're only able to kind of navigate navigate them or understand them with the given categories that we have available to us. And if this experience, as you're describing, is sort of beyond categories, correct? It's If it's, you know, we use this familiar term non-dual, then, then there would be a sense in which, I've, and I've always been curious about this, it's like, how can that which is beyond categories actually be describable within categories? And so then, as you're saying, there's this kind of poetic attempt to to kind of describe or 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 um, distill, you know, what is experienced in that space, 
But could you, you know, could you uh, go into a little bit? I liked what you said about how we know, you know, that every living being knows this connectedness. But what kind of a knowledge is this? Is this a, are you talking about this is like a, an intuitive knowledge that's somehow smothered by our contractedness? And it, is it something that percolates up into our experience um, at a variety of different times? I mean, what is the nature of that knowing that you're talking about? Um, intuitive knowledge comes later on. What I'd rather, um, what I'd rather emphasize here is that the paradoxical nature of all experiences, paradoxical nature of being alive, is that there is no such thing as total ignorance. Mm. In fact, um, whether we look into tantric lore or whether we look into the Vedantic traditions, the avidya, Sanskrit terms, which stands for uh, simply not knowing, ignorance, is, uh, as it were, non-existent. There is no such thing. We cannot categorize that which does not exist. Avidya is a misperception. Mm-hmm. If we misperceived something, it doesn't mean that it had a presence prior to our misperception. If we misperceive the shadow for a, I don't know, for a dino or for, for a tiger, it doesn't mean that that shadow was was a monster, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like appeared us. So the, the, the nature of avidya does not have reality at its basis. And this has very clearly been, been dealt in certain uh, scriptures, like the, the most notoriously in Brahma Sutras, which gave a qualitative platform for someone like Adi Shankara to uh, build or to evaluate his Advaita Vedanta. We know that historically Advaita Vedanta gains a new ground through the expositions and the teachings of Adi Shankara, the 8th century sage. And it is upon the Brahma Sutras that he built this, where the Avidya itself, like the realization is gained through Avidya. In other words, the vidya or ignorance essentially here has its purpose. Mm. But I'd like to put a, a bookmark here and go back to where you kind of uh, directed uh, the discourse and directed the, uh, this uh, conversation. Is that I would like to add even more to these experiences that are available to all of us at some point and they go unnoticed. Mm. We can even now give a more precise examples or more delicate examples that the state of unity is here at all times and this is where again tantric tradition draws its rich uh, area of methodology for example we know very well that a repose between the incoming and the outgoing breath that point of suspension is where the thought cannot enter but it is so short, it is simply goes unnoticed. When the egg draws in, when we inhale, there's a point of suspense. And then when we exhale, there's a point of suspense again. And these points are recognized in Tantra as extremely important. They have a name, they have a significance and the methodology arises that the, the attention, the awareness is being essentially directed at these points they call also they are also called as points of juncture mm-hmm. and these points of juncture there's nothing it's if you will if we kind of try to lose 
uh, so use uh, an analogy here. It's like a acupressure point. Mm. It's the point where consciousness becomes matter, if you will, where the connection between consciousness, awareness, and what we call matter is unperturbed. And these points are not just the point that I referred to now, these points also are observable in nature. The point at sunrise, at the sunset, these points, these essentially points of juncture are extremely important and many tantric scriptures emphasize these points. They are called points in between. My own teacher, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, used to say that um, everything is in the gaps. Everything is in the gaps. Of course, this is a this is the cornerstones of Vedic knowledge. Everything is in the gaps. In the gaps between what? It's in the gaps between the sounds. Mm. When the sound collapses, there is a gap, and in that gap, all the laws of nature are in molten state of pure potentiality. So in other words, what am I trying to say here, what I'm trying to build up on here is that unity is here at all times, if only our attention was more refined. Right, which is a different uh, teaching than the idea that unity is like in the linear future where I'm going to experience some enlightenment sometime, you know, sometime later, and it's sort of a transcendent experience where I go outside the world. This is much this is more of an imminent experience. Is that a good way to describe it? And it's, it's always the most intimate thing that there is. And yet, um, I, I, I'm thinking of the Pratyabhidna teachings that, that it's, you know, it's like, it's not a kind of other thing, but right, rather recognizing that it was something that was there all along. Is it something like this? It's a good start, but it, <laughs> I, I, I would say that, uh, sure, in, in the doctrines such as you've mentioned, the Pratya Vijna Hridayam, that direct recognition in the heart, uh, is very much based on bringing the refinement of attention to single-pointedness, where that attention is never broken mm -hmm. but at some point of course it's full of amazing revelations that we realize that this reality is, is here at all times that reality as you built when you were building your question that this whole notion that somehow we will be able to break free from this imposition from this essentially else called contracted state of awareness or this ignorance or this not knowing or this what have you and of course we we don't want to uh, scare here too lightly because we would need to go back then and see what is in fact then abstracting consciousness from itself yeah but to that to add i'd like to also mention that uh, many teachings precisely and many teachers precisely do that when they are in the presence of those who have been treading the past for, uh, path for quite a while uh, the first thing they need to do is to break that very cozy very comfortable expectation that one day this will happen 
and it's a probing. My only reservations to this method is when that is the only method hammered. Because in Tantra, and as far as I understood, because don't forget, footnote, I checked you out as well. So I have uh, listened to a couple of interviews, okay. quite a few, few of them. So, and I'm also prepared a little bit. Perfect. Uh, not, not entirely haven't done my homework, but I'm honored you know, that you listened yeah. to them. Sure. No, I, I had. I had. To. I wanted to hear your voice. I wanted to hear the angle of questions, and I was, uh, without any kind of back scratching here in return, really, really was impressed by the emphasis that you do, and also your ability to take the interviewer, the one who is being interviewed, to the area maybe where the interviewer wasn't prepared to go, which is a very, very very good and i hope you're going to do it here so i've noticed that you have a healthy uh, interest and i could feel it's on the rise towards tantric teaching itself and as you know and have heard and i'm sure many listeners here um, do as well that tantra is, is rich in expositions tantra, tantra is rich in methodology and there are distinctive means upai as they're called in tantra means yeah. in other words different strokes for different folks mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like what what will work for someone may not necessarily work for another and whose level of consciousness is refined enough and there's a, enough of that refinement very little is needed just let that little touch a reminder that just that very very um infinitesimally subtle point would do just just that mm -hmm. with someone else uh, a lot of real kind of like tools you know oriented work is needed and nothing wrong with that either so this if we only adopt that um hammering that highest means that at no time we were ever anything other than our own selves mm -hmm. and if that does not hold if it, if it only creates yet another conceptual understanding right no matter no matter how profound that understanding it's not serving mm -hmm. it's becoming it's crystallizing in understanding but i'm not experiencing it it's a sincere seeker will say well i love that i hear you but i'm not experiencing it yeah so the teacher will then lower the plank go down okay let's try from here Okay, let's see how this works. This doesn't work as well. Okay, what about here? This is where the skills come in, in action, essentially. So, so that's interesting. So what you're saying then is that, that the crystallization of understanding, which um, can actually obstruct the process of realization. Is that what you're saying? So, and and I, I find that interesting because this, from what I see in the Shaiva Tantra tradition is that it's such, it's it's a, conceptually rich tradition. I mean, there's, you know, there's many traditions obviously within it, and there are many ways of looking at, you know, this absolute reality, but it, you know, it overflows with these kinds of maps. And, and so, you know, sometimes I wonder, you know, in what you're saying, like, is it almost 
is it tempting for those that are attracted? And I notice in myself, like as an intellectually curious person, and uh, that I found that people who are attracted to Shiva Tantra are very intellectually curious. There's a lot of smart people who are who are teaching in this tradition, and and you know some scholars. And so I wonder if like if if you see there being, and I and I and I imagine that you do because you write about it even in the bio that I read. It, th- that there's a danger, or maybe danger is the wrong word, but there's a tendency to kind of let the experience be over-determined by the conceptual framework. And, you know, and if that is the case, like, what, I- what are we to do? You know, what's the, what's the next step to kind of break ourselves free from that desire to have it all mapped out and to assume that our experience is going to reflect the map? Well, it's, the answer to that is rather simple. <laughs> that that it simply requires sincerity. Mm. It simply requires sincerity, and one doesn't need to admit it to anyone. But uh, living from direct cognition is very different than living from a concept or even from a from a memory. There are many people who have uh, gone through profound breakthroughs, and some have been equipped with enough uh, confidence to step out and become these um, essentially instruments, at least in their understanding, that they are capable of leading others. But the test is here is not what one went through ever, yesterday or 10, 50 years ago, but where one is in and with no respect to time. In other words, up until it is memory, there is still some work. It is belongs to the domain of what is still being perceived within this linearity of time and space. There are breakthroughs. Sincere seekers actually are plenty out there and they come out so no late, and they look for an adept to clarify certain things. Mm. I don't know if it's uh, for me to share this, but even in the world of non-duality, it is my experience, direct experience, when those people who are already in a position to guide others, in other words, self-assumed position, they are out there teaching, offering, offering retreats, seminars, certainly satsangs. And yet, when occasion rose, these people asked, um, you know, and for instance, having problem with sleep for eight years of my life. Mm. Well, I'm having trouble with this, you know, the energy doesn't let me rest. Mm. I'm exhausted. You know, who's your teacher? My teacher is so-and-so, my God, your teacher is a, you know, is a big name. You know, why don't you go to your teacher? Because my teacher cannot help me. Why am I saying that? I'm not just trying to wash laundry in public here. <laughs> but it just essentially it boils down to that um, sincerity of acknowledging where the process continues and where one works from um, framework of conceptual understanding mm. and one is simply in a stream of one's own awareness perpetually. Mm. 
And I respect tradition and I respect those teachers who have this audacity, this courage. It's not easy to go out and work in, in the field, let alone with the field. It requires a lot. What rather concerns me here is that in the day and age when this quest for liberation becomes essentially now is no longer a domain of, of a few chosen ones. It's out there, it's, it's loomingly out there. But we speak about it in terms of how New Age speaks about it in this. We, are, we have entered this auxiliary age, this great portal, the shift in paradigm is eminent and we all take part in that. There is a lot of truth in that, of course. We can speculate whether our time is more special than any other time in history. It's another topic altogether. But there is also a danger that with this mass appeal to a deeper knowledge, to direct experience, there will be inevitably more people out there doing this work. And if these people are not rooted and not coming from this essentially what is the main prerequisite where the teaching has to be alive in their veins, as it were. Yeah. Then it, the teaching will inevitably take form of a conceptual um, discourse. Yeah. Some are better, others are like some are more eloquent at that. Others are not. But one way or the other, seasoned seeker will be able to uh, perceive that sooner or later, hopefully sooner. Yeah, well, I mean, sorry to interrupt, but what, what I hear you saying, I feel like is really interesting because not only, you know, do I feel like what you're saying is true about the conceptual system elaborating around things that become popular, but also, you know, we are also in a, in a consumer driven culture. And so the more attractive something like this becomes in the mainstream, the more likely it is to be branded. I mean, we're already seeing that in the yoga community in general, you know, so there's this artificial, you know, uh, and opportunistic um, uh, um, uh, relationship that people have toward these teachings, because it's like, oh, you know, this is the way that I'm going to make my living, because more people are interested in it. So people are going to ri rise up who, who f see the opportunity to become teachers and to, and to, and to have followings and whatever. So, so I love your thoughts on that, you know, the uh, how I don't, I don't know, uh, how we are to kind of discern um, in our own practice between the authentic, you know, uh, teachings or teachers and these ones that are maybe um, more inclined or more inspired by the consumer-driven narrative that is always sort of, you know, accompanying anything that's becoming mainstream? Well, it's not as, as simple. Mm. And at the same time, there is already a self-selective process in place. We can look at it from a more analytical perspective, kind of in retrospect, or we can look at it also from the perspective of why certain people attracted to certain teachers and certain teachings and certain methodologies that in itself uh, is very um, is very telling simply because likes attracts likes, mm -hmm. um, and not that 
none of us are uh, reassured from making, as it were, perhaps less smart choices. Sometimes we go with a lot of what essentially clouds our perception. And I'd like to say that out loud, that the more charismatic the teacher is, the more danger that that, that teacher will attract the following. And I'm saying that fully aware that many people consider myself to be such a teacher. I'm fully aware that there is a lot of, um, if you will, facade that can really abstract one from a proper judgment, which is required here before to before that plugging in, before that process of connecting to someone to steadfast to reassure that there will be a transmission because I come from the understanding experience and tradition where this transmission is indispensable part it's the part it's the teaching is not about what we understand sometimes people come and they don't speak English well enough and yet they receive transmission through a sheer sound being in the, in the presence, being in that field, mm-hmm. and one left to wonder, why did I bother to go for, you know? <laughs> so there is kind of, we can, of course, we can be, break this into a delta of various uh, top, you know, topics we can go from here. But in response to what you've asked, I think it's like literally there is this already uh, as certain streams that, that direct us. If someone is going um, for a certain prepackaged kind of easy to grasp and very, very applicable in a sense, um, ready-made, I would also add, perspective on this, then that also quite uh, indicative of their level of maturity, their level of development. Mm. And it doesn't matter how young, how it doesn't matter how senior, how mature, age makes very little, little difference. I, my, my experience that some of the young people of our time, they like, I don't know, they're like already sages in the making. You know, there's so much maturity in this 20-year-old, in a 25-year-old, and yet other people like have been here for a while and have already enough experiences and it seems, seems like still kind of going around the circles when it comes to certain um, understanding when it comes to this, 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 where to choose to drink, to quench the thirst. Yeah. Where to partake, where to partake. So in a non-duality scene, which I'm sure you're aware of fully, it's a, it's a talk of talk of the town, isn't it? It's the this very appeal that already, already enlightenment is a bogus, that there is no such thing as enlightenment because the individual soul is a, an, a, a, a <laughs> it's not something which has a stance of its own. Yeah. So how can individual soul get enlightenment in, a, in, in the first place? So all there is is this light or luminosity of awareness, 
And this is very, very liberating to hear that. It's very inspiring to hear that. Of course, the satsang movement is a, is a very beautiful movement. However, it should be immediately then, immediately restated that yes, being is given. We don't need to work at it. Yet this is a process. Yeah. It's a process. It's not that the, the alchemy, the metamorphosis is a process. Yeah. And if we accept this, that uh, already everyone is enlightened because all there is is light of consciousness that illumines everything within and without, then that will be just that, a mental modification, yet another vritti, yeah. yet another, another thought. Yeah, it's what you're saying uh, is really interesting. I want to go back to something that you had said about transmission because I I was really um, uh, I really enjoyed reading in this I think it was a yoga actual interview that you did written interview where you were talking about transmission in in response to a question about the guru disciple or teacher student relationship because as this other interviewer had you know pointed out this has become a very um, often criticized. I know, you know, a number of people who are very much against or don't think that it works in the West and all of this stuff about it. And and I I really enjoyed you uh, how you talked about the transmission as being more than something something. It's more than simply a skill set, right? It's not. It's just not that you're learning these um, that you're learning these specific practices to do, there's also, you say, an attitude, which is more than simply learning a technique, I think was how you put it. So would you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's a really beautiful way to think that there's a, tr a transmission of an attitude taking place between a teacher and a student that is more than, that is beyond the discursive goings on, right? It's, it's not just a kind of intellectual engagement, right? Well, it, it, it encompasses in itself absolutely everything and and leaves nothing. Mm. Um, the, the term Guru Shishya Parampara, the, the kind of um, teacher-student continuation, the, the, this continuity of the teacher-student is really um, if we only view this from the perspective of someone who is in a position to impart certain, even if it's most sacred, knowledge to another party, mm -hmm. then we already there and then missing the whole point. Let us maybe view it from slightly different perspective. There are understandings which are becoming more and more prevalent today where most advanced or at least most avant-garde quantum science mm -hmm. is literally uh, rubbing shoulders or holding hands with the understandings that we can find in many non-dual non teachings yeah. of the past. And that is that that which essentially uh, instruct us that there is no such thing as the re reality of out there yeah. as opposed to in here. In other words, the world is as you see it, which was the late motive of the Yoga Vashishta, 
the very central line which runs as a uh, red thread across this whole entire scripture, Vashishta Yoga, that the world is as you see it. This brings very, very pertinent points that reality or relationship between subject and object, it's not what we think. Of course, it is our experience, and this is the marvel of this Maya. This is the marvel of this, what appears, which is not what it seems, which appears to be in the way it appears to be. So if we view this perspective of teacher-student relationship as this ultimate subject-object relationship that we are in for some revelations. We are possibly here in for some very significant revelations which perhaps could help us to rehabilitate that relationship because it's an ongoing uh, uh, dilemma. We all are facing it now in our post-postmodern age where this relationship has undergone some violation on both parts and undergone some essentially uh, perhaps necessary, necessary shake-up. It is for us to reevaluate this because uh, as I like very much what in one of your interviews you said, we cannot throw the baby with the water. Mm-hmm. This, or the baby with the, um, you know, bath water, yeah. bath, bath water. It's not about uh, what the teacher can do for the student. But if we understand that at some point, this subject and object relationship need to enter a very subtle phase, very subtle phase where it can be refined further. And we can see this possibility in the guru shishya or teacher-student relationship present all throughout. In other words, when the questions were asked some of the masters of the past about the possibility of recognizing one's guru, and the many responses were quite quite um, in agreement, irrespective of where this teacher comes, which you know this teacher belongs to this tradition, is that that is nearly impossible mm. because the recognition will be only in relevant to one's level of consciousness. You cannot recognize anything other than your own self in the other. This is the relationship between subject and object. The value of our experience, whatever we, you know, someone who is in a uh, balanced state, someone who is, let's say, in a state of equilibrium and in a beautiful part of the world and not necessarily is burdened with tasks, working, let's say, somewhere, on a beach in Goa, in such sunset, the whole world is an oyster at this moment. And someone who is going through a torment, walking on the same beach, to him, maybe this place is at the moment will feel like a hell. So, the, the, I mean, and everything in between, of course, this, yeah. it just tells us there is no such thing as an objective reality. Yeah. There is no objective reality. Everything that we experience, essentially, is influenced and colored by the subjectivity of that experience. 
And it is that subjectivity of our experience what colors that relationship. Therefore, when my own students come to me, sincerely, those who, who really, really go through a difficult time of commitment, the first thing I do is to tell them that this is a good process. Don't discard that. What you're going through now is a very healthy process because it is through this reevaluation. There's no such thing because it's not based on faith. It's no one is asking you to give your life and just on the account of faith that someone will be able to guide you. These are very serious matters that we often expect from spiritual teachers what we would not ever dream to expect from anyone else. Let's face it also. In our community, and we do as much as, you know, as much as we can as a community, we even, I'll just break it, we began the campaign two years ago, campaign uh, aimed at rehabil rehabilitation of that teacher-student relationship in terms of how it is understood now in this uh, gradually globalized culture. Yeah. The Western culture, I, I don't think even it makes any difference not to say Western because really right. globalization uh, removes these boundaries now. Yeah. You can be in Japan or China and have the same dilemma. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. so really it's that subject-object subtlety and impossibility of knowing other than through the faculties of essentially how refined are these faculties, and these faculties are refined by nothing other than our own awareness, our own consciousness. So it is where our consciousness is. I know it from myself that I did not recognize the value in Guru until I actually have experienced major, major shift in awareness. Before that, it was yeah, everything, everything. All the fight went into it. And what was the character? Would you want to talk a little bit about that shift in awareness? Like, what was the character of that shift that made you receptive to that? Um, I have to confess here. Maybe it will might disappoint some listeners that no. <laughs> it, it, it. Well, you know, you never know because, like, I, I cannot speak about it with um, with this laser sharp or sword like sharp discrimination because it happened to me from a place of um, from that very molten place of simply being bathed by that love which was born out of recognition which I can't even begin to uh, put into words in terms of what happened prior to that and what led to that and why it's just simply yes there was some it's not non-linear at all the whole thing is like there, there's a whole storyline obviously mm. but the experience itself is if i were to use the sanskrit term bhava yeah. that feeling that mood yeah that mood exactly that that particular mood was all steeped in more feeling-oriented yeah. or coming from the feeling rather than from the intellect. Yeah. The intellect no longer was able to fight. It simply surrendered. It simply laid the arms down. It laid the armor down. And, and that was a really disarming moment of surrender, which then unfolded 
into profound phase of of being completely uh, which turned me into you know cooked pie you know it's like mousse totally pie. yeah so it's it's just i cannot come you know i cannot compare it with with anything it's just um, waves upon waves upon waves of of feeling which I understood what devotion is. I understood that devotion is not something one can teach. Yeah. It cannot be taught. It, it simply rises out of uh, of that where consciousness itself finds itself at some point. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think that's a disappointing answer at all. In fact, I think that's a really beautiful answer because you're, you're sort of touching a little bit or expressing something a, a little differently that we explored earlier, which is that these experiences don't necessarily arise in this linear way. And I think that's refreshing for people to hear because a lot of people, the, the way that enlightenment or experience, enlightenment, enlightenment or experiences of awakening are often described is in this very like punctuated way. You know, I was sitting at my table, I have this explosive feeling and blah, 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 and all this happened. And maybe it happens that way for some people, but, you know, uh, but I, but I think a lot of people get, there's this almost this complex of of envy that arises around that. You know, it's like, well, why don't I have those moments of punctuation? And so what I hear you saying is that it doesn't have to arise that way. You can't really describe it. It's not a linear thing. And yet it's very powerful and illuminating. So I think it's a beautiful answer. Well, yeah, yes and no. Like, like, I mean, uh, when, what I mean by that, yes and no, is that Funny enough, in relation to my own process, it was very intense. It was very dramatic. Okay. But where I chose to um, enter our exchanges here is to bring to our awareness the continuity in that uninterrupted unity, which is there at all times. Yeah. And in, in addition to that, it on it is only upon this major, major sweep, if you will, through when the, when essentially there was uh, total incineration, mm. or in, in certain traditions spoken of as this annihilation, incineration took place because the consciousness, because it was remained conscious at all times, illumined by the light of its own luminosity, when all this corporal reality was simply dissolved in the light of its own awareness, only when this became a predominant, even through a phase in time experience, I was able to glance back and recognize all those, what Osho used to call satoris, like some other teachers, you know, those mini illuminations. Yeah. And I was amazed how many of those were prior to that. In the studio as an artist, losing myself in that act of painting, where suddenly that subject and object cease to exist, and it's just a pure flow. Yeah. Of course, I've had dancers speaking about that. I've had musicians speaking about that. Yeah. I've had guys who were at it at something really intensely speak about that. Yeah. So, the, you know, one very, very telling experience was simply one really hot summer in London, when I was going through a very rather traumatic experience of separation. And I just like rose up, I was at someone's apartment. It was this very, like, real painful transition. I was quite young. I just sat up in bed in these bay French windows and this warm rain outside. And I sat and wept there 
by a sheer fact that I found myself alive. It, it, it was just this pure, what I would now call moment of very intimate connection to, the, to this moment of being, where that beingness was experienced irrespective of perhaps because of all these added stresses otherwise. At some point it snagged, it could no longer, you know, the nervous system could no longer hold this stress. So it gave way, it gave in. So I woke up like literally my body was jumped up. I sat, I looked outside these open windows and this pouring rain and the sound and I just felt the happiest man alive. Okay, I will wake up in the morning and I will have to smell the coffee of what I had to go through. But at that moment, none of that existed, you see? Yeah. And then, of course, in, in all this in retrospect, our life is filled with these moments. Filled with these moments. This is why certain traditions kind of which uh, prefer to uh, utilize more elusive uh, dialogues and and, and, and in the exposition, like Taoistic, let's say, perspective. And Zen also has that element, and certainly Sufi tradition. is It's never to speak about it, never to go trying to articulate it yeah. in, in the way, but rather through something else. Which, funny enough, Tantra is opposite to that. Tantra is like, it just, you know, just stretch your bow and hit the target as close to that hard as, as you can, in terms of all, in terms of everything. It's very different. This is maybe why earlier you've asked that this interest to tam, you know, towards Tantra in our days. I think we are coming to a very beautiful time of rehabilitation of Tantra, where these uh, kind of uh, misconceptions and misperceptions are hopefully will be behind us. Yeah. And the right people will begin to uh, consider this path as a, as a very exciting path filled with very rare possibilities, which perhaps not so present in other methodologies. Yeah. So what do you think, that's interesting you bring up the the pointedness, I've never heard anyone describe it like that, the pointedness of Tantra versus um, traditions like Zen or Taoism. When, when, are you speaking of things like, you know, the Zen cone, where it's like you're, you're entering that emptiness through a kind of paradox, like a, a, a paradoxical tool? Is that what you mean when you say uh, um, an, a roundabout way of getting to that place? Is that what you're describing? Well, without being afraid uh, to generalize, and we'll allow ourselves a little bit maybe to bring it uh, in, in a moment to show that Tantra also has that element mm -hmm. at its perhaps highest, most refined uh, ex expositions. But yes, what I mean also here is that additional element of artistry yeah. that, that Zen is so uh, known for. The additional element, um, artistry here, in a sense, that artfulness. So in other words, it's not just about grokking it, but it, it has this, uh, I would say, Zen-like beautiful ways of how to cut through, disarming. I mean, the whole culture of Zen is found on extremely refined concepts that came, obviously, from India, through China, it's a, it's that um, Diana versus Chan versus Zen. Mm. It's a, the same as the transform, the etymology of transformation of the same term. Zen is the culture of meditation, but it gets this additional um, 
the value by the time it reaches its refinement in Japan, which some scholars consider also, uh, that's why the decadence of the of the of the teaching took place. You know, the, the different perspectives yeah. that the emphasis was more on form. You know how what you dress in, how you sit, the you know the, the you know the place that built for it. It's like it's so also meticulous. Um, it, it's so demanding. You know, I, I'm very often take a mickey out of it in, in my own immersions, my own retreats, so that you know to loosen up people's attention to, let's say that what could be considered as an entourage. But for some people, this is so attractive. But to me, what's interesting in in, in particular uh, approaches in, in Zen is that unexpected element, uh, like the artist way or the way of the tea, tea master. You see, it's being able to improvise. It's in the improvisation. You can set everything, but then the tea master comes and, like you know, and and, and throws a bit of dust here and, and breaks something because the lines are too straight, too symmetrical. We need to bend here something, you know. And it, it, it's kind of like reminding us constantly of that um, embrace of the permanence and impermanence and dance, that dance that what Zen is also is that fusion of Buddhist ideals carried into China by Bodhidharma um, with with which was richly infused, or rather, which was infused with the very rich Taoistic traditions, mm-hmm. and and that, of course, this uh, is a unique gift. So, so that non-linearity here, that uh, you, you you mentioned the koan, it's only one aspect. There there are many aspects. The the the, the passage, the transmission itself in Zen is very peculiar. The, the, Zen stories are uh, full of the stories about the spiritual fools, fools, right? The, the same like in, in Sufi, in like the, the scholar versus versus the, you know, that kind of a holy fool from the south who in the end gets it all yeah. without trying. You know, he's washing the dishes, he's outside chopping wood, carries water, rides the donkey, right? Mm-hmm. The scholar is like there, sitting in the class, reciting everything, wearing nice robes. But in the end, the mantle goes to the one who was doing seemingly mundane tasks, Yeah. right? And the, 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 these stories obviously are there to teach us something, to show us something, the paradoxical nature of it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so... No, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> No, and, and so, though I did say that uh, Tantra and Tantric tradition is very precise, what I meant by that is very precise in the way that it dealt with the spiritual anatomy, the term that I use very often for the anatomy of the process, which of course incorporates and includes all this, what we know today about the um, the pathways, the pranic pathways, you know, the highway to God, of course, is accompanied by this whole um, conglomerate of pranic pathways. It's a, it's a science in its own right. And there are many, many different um, accounts and schools left. Some consider them to be fragmented and it's very 
difficult to make sense out of it. But there are, therefore, this is where the role of the adepts come to hold this all within themselves, because all this knowledge needs to be continually verified, continuously verified, lived through. Otherwise, it will become just that. It will become just this encyclopedic, uh, huge library. You know, like yeah. the, the the true knowledge never 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 uh, burned and never drowned. Right? Mm-hmm. We know that historically. Right, the Alexandrian library, though perished, knowledge survived. Arabs translated it, took it, and then passed it on to spare the Renaissance. Because you know it's quite quite beautiful analogy here. How Shakti makes sure that you know it will save that knowledge in the heart of the sincere or the eager uh, adept, mm-hmm. and that knowledge will pass on. Otherwise, we'll lament, oh, my God, we lost all these works of great Greek philosophers of pre-Socratic era, you know, where all this glory, oh, no, apparently, oh, here it is resurfaced through the work of Plotinus, you know. So there is so many different ways of how this um, process is reassured. But above all else, through the heartbeat of those who are alive and kicking now. Yeah, I, you know, I I haven't felt that in, in so strong a way as I do. I've recently or relatively recently picked up chanting the Sri Rudram as a part of my practice. And and I have these moments where I'm chanting it where I really feel that this isn't something that I elected to do. You know, it's not something that I chose as a part of my practice. I, I, I experience it almost like the Shakti is 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 preserving through my faculties you know preserving uh, you know my small tiny part is is is, is continuing the the kind of um aliveness of this tradition through my own personal practice so yeah i i i, I love that idea of the shakti you know needing moving the wisdom where it can be preserved based on the conditions of you know whatever's going on Com- completely now what you're touching upon now is the real heart of all teachings is in the oral transmission. What does it mean in the oral transmission? <laughs> Why oral transmission is so important? Well, oral here, here means vocalized, and someone obviously partakes in that. Someone hears that. It has an additional value here. Oral traditions, essentially, I, we could argue, and we'll leave that to scholars, but we could perhaps speculate, I should say, that all ancient teachings were oral traditions for quite some time, until the necessity rose to pass them on or reassure that they will not die somehow, because maybe this conflict, that conflict, maybe because of... Uh, Certain teachings needed to go underground, maybe because of the situations, you know, geopolitical situations in different parts of the world where this necessity rose, then these teachings began to be written down. We know that already, uh, certainly the case when it comes to the traditions born in the Indian subcontinent. The Vedas were all recited. Uh, all Vedic sciences were recited and recited from heart to heart literally so that when we partake in something which is spoken or when we ourselves um, recite or vocalize 
something which is otherwise written, we bring this actually into that gross sphere of existence and enliven, enliven that existence with these sounds, as well as, if you will, refresh this out of that vintage point so that they have this possibility to be vocalized and heard. Now, you may recite it for yourself, so who will be the hearer here? Obviously that yourself. You partake in that. That suffice. Whether you are alone in a company with 100 people, with 10 people, or just for yourself, we can of course go from here and we can go into real subtlety of this, that it is for the sake of one who partakes tremendous joy in essentially experiencing these vibrations, even on a cellular level. In addition, there is a, this tantric understanding which belongs to the uh, levels of speech. It's this mm -hmm. knowledge, knowledge of vak. Yeah. And it is this vak, which, which is essentially the ancient, the most ancient term for, for Shakti, the most ancient term for, for Kundalini itself, that vak represents. And it's that what stands for the sound, for the word, for that sacred word. In the beginning, there was a word and so forth, right? Yeah. It's true to all traditions. In the beginning, there was the sound, pure sound. Sound was emitted. And the emission of that sound is a perpetual affair. It's not something that was emitted at the time of the Big Bang. Yeah. <laughs> and we're hearing the echo of that. Although at some point we nearly bought that. We were very excited that this could be the, the, the story of our universe. That we live actually in a, in a, in a the byproduct of some explosion. <laughs> the, uh, the, now there are other interesting possibilities are being entertained that actually it never came into existence. Simply, it, it's perpetually comes into existence, perpetually being sustained, perpetually being reabsorbed. Yeah. And it is this. This is so fascinating to me. This is really fascinating ground, where again again this ancient wisdom and most cutting-edge findings and breakthroughs in sciences are now closing the circle that broken circle that very important connection because spirituality as my teachers to say has to be verified through scientific knowledge we cannot just leave like um taking it all on trust just because it was valid then. It has to be lived and be valid today. This perhaps is the only reason why sacred knowledge need, need, always needs to be reevaluated for the necessity of time. Mm -hmm. And there will be always those who will come and reevaluate that knowledge for the necessity of time because that's in the very nature of consciousness. So this is why um, that validity that this like people at some point might be so taken by euphoria that all this is available. Internet, Google, Schmoogle, right? Slick finger, yeah. Tip of the fingers, we've got it all. Yeah. We've got the most amazing access now to anything. Any any most obscure Sanskrit term, you've got it. Mm. You know, you want to learn Tantra on any level, you've got it. It's all out there. 
anything. Kabbalah, there's not, no secrets left, as it were, right? Yeah. And yet, at the, and yet, we live in the in, in at the time when it's like it's it's still following that same kind of paradigm that we can all get it somehow by leapfrogging somehow outsmarting this whole process. And this is this is I'm quite uh, happy for the opportunities like this even to speak about it, and that uh, that there is these attempts being made in many different corners now. Uh, with the peers in this job to to rehabilitate uh, and kind of like the dust has to settle, no? The, the dust of all this euphoria, hype, you know, the way the 60s, the way the 70s, right? Then kind of all settled down a little bit. And now the, the non-duality is settling down now. And this is what I feel why the Tantra is on the rise and why Kashmir Shaivism is also, everyone wants to add it to their CV because it's just cool. It is cool. Um, you bring up a lot of interesting points, and, and I want to go back just a tiny bit about. Uh, I'm glad you brought up Vak because that was something I wanted to talk about in 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 terms of Matrika. But I just wanted to make a couple of observations. One is that you know what I think is so interesting about the discussion around the oral traditions is that it's often when people reference it, it's very often implied that the oral traditions was, uh, it's a primitive form. You know, it's like, oh, they were doing the oral traditions because it was their primitive way of continuing um, the tradition, which downplays the fundamental importance of vibration, right? It, it downplays the, uh, the, the, the matrika shakti, um, which is what I want to talk about now, because I remember for me, I, you know, I, I used to be a singer and music has always been fundamental to my life, but music was always purely an expression, you know, it's like reserved for this kind of category of expression, but it wasn't kind of illuminating anything primary or fundamental in the, in, 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 at least in my own life, <clears throat> besides my own kind of emotional, um, whatever. But, but it's, you know, when I learned of the kind of philosophy on bound around Matrika Shakti, it was, and, and, and this idea of vibration and vak that the tradition talks about, it's what permitted me the experience because I was actually, you know, then I, once I was intellectually open, then I could be open, at least experientially in my own practice to, you know, chanting the rudram and having this kind of, you know, in, enjoyment in, in the, just the practice of chanting it. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I wanted to kind of explore like what the you, and I and I'm I was the reason originally the reason why I wanted to talk about Matrika Shakti was because I was listening to the Buddhist the gas pump panel discussion you did with Sally Kempton who I've also interviewed for this podcast she's really lovely um, and um, and the whole discussion around quantum physics which you've brought up already and the Matrika Shakti so I don't I don't know where the question is in there but if you could maybe describe. Um, what that what the role of the matrika is and and talk a little bit more about this um i don't know vibratory potency that is part of the experience of this kind of um tradition well yes the, i remember this panel very well and it was a great joy to and a great honor to share it with sally Kempton, and not just because uh, there was an opportunity to share the passion and to speak on the topic of Kashmir Shaivism, 
and Menes Kafatas was with us and yeah. organized by Rikarchen. But also because of uh, Sally Kempton's intimate connection to a great uh, teacher of our time, yeah. Baba Muktananda, Swami Muktananda, that uh, played a tremendously important role in my own sadhana mm. uh, on a subtle plane. And of course, uh, my own introduction to the Kashmir Shaiva teachings were through the discourses of Swami Muktananda. Oh, okay. Though early discourses of Swami Muktananda were all kind of loosely based, um, or rather steeped in Advaita Vedanta, mm. he himself gravitated gradually, gradually towards a more Shaiva perspective as he was discovering these teachings. Mm. This is could, could sound paradoxical for some listeners. How can someone who claims to be enlightened master already teaching others, actually teaching is not even the right term here, yeah. at, at, in whose presence many people simply break open, awaken, still finds joy in exploring and finding and looking for the possibilities of um, understanding perhaps this from the perspective from the scriptural traditional perspective and especially i find this um forgive me for saying judgmental attitudes in the non-dual communities where people are very quick to point out that for the one who is in non-dual state uh, all interests fade away that you know the, the person essentially would show no interest to anything and this Sounds is certainly not, well <laughs> <laughs> you said it exactly it does sound boring you know like if, if the aim or the goal of self-realization was to become a log of wood you know then <laughs> drifting somewhere in the pacific and then thrown on the beach in one of the islands in british columbia then yeah well great um, Thankfully, there are many different uh, perspectives on this. And what I'd like to also mention, which is very, very important, I don't know, it's perhaps enough to give it a whole entire in interview or two about how varied self-realization can be. When we speak of enlightenment, we tend to take for granted or we tend to assume that everyone everyone is in the presence of that same taste, as Ken Wilber put it, which, of course, not Ken Wilber's um, way of describing it. Uh, it belongs to Zen culture, that same flavor, same taste. Yeah. That same taste, by the way, is a, a misunderstanding of the highest degree of, of cognition, because that same taste actually belongs to the witnessing state of consciousness. But I don't want to deflect us from here, so feel free to put a bookmark. We can come back to that, why the same days belongs to the witnessing state of consciousness rather than the true unity, a true non-duality. But this uh, panel, though uh, I was really, really enjoying uh, you know, being in this panel, I don't think really succeeded in um, delivering what we said to, uh, to share, uh, because the, the topic is so vast. Yeah. And Kashmir Shaivism, though 
uh, enjoys now tremendous popularity, still remains largely unknown area. Yeah. Unknown area, even within those who consider themselves versed in tantras, mm -hmm. because it has a unique perspective, unique perspective, even within the scope of tantric, tantric um, philosophies or tantric methodologies. It shares a lot, of course, with uh, other tantras. Now, there are voices, uh, in, both in among the adepts and scholars, that actually Kashmir Shaivism is very much a revival of the authentic early Upanishadic teachings. So, in other words, the, um, there is a perspective that Kashmir Shaivism itself, as Ananda Kurmaraswami, I think that was, or Rabindranath Tagore, forgive me, I, I could be mixing them here. I think it's most probably Rabindranath Tagore who said, the last best kept secret of India. It was the last best kept secret of India back then when Rabindranath Tagore spoke of it. Mm -hmm. And it is pretty much remains the last best kept secret of India today. Mm. Only a couple of decades ago, the most comprehensive publishing house, State University of New York, only had a handful of people on the board who represented the Kashmir Shaivism studies. Yeah. These are legendary people. Legendary people. Lillian Silber, Andre Padua, Duchkovsky, Mark Duchkovsky, great British. A scholar who essentially sacrificed his entire life to study this, yeah. moved for that to India, and you know, um, my heart goes off to these scholars who essentially kept the torch alive in terms of um, giving their entire life to the um, Gnoli, I should mention, of course. You see, they're the very different names. It's like Italians, French, yeah. Brits. Nobody knew about Kashmir Shaivism. No, nobody knew back then. Even 20 years ago, there was very little. Swami Muktananda already was teaching hundreds and thousands of people under the umbrella of Kashmir Shaivism. And Tali, um, pardon me, Sally Kenton was um, really, really, she must have had such an amazing karma to generate it. To, she was um, chosen by Swami Muktananda to travel with, with her when he was teaching. So she partook firsthand um, in what Muktananda was imparting. When we say that, it's very important to understand that it was an adept. And his expositions on Tantric Shaivism of Kashmir has an additional value because it was not a regurgitation of what he learned, but rather reevaluation reevaluation of what he was living to give this teaching essentially mm. um, its value in our day and time and that that fact also gave me that same audacity that same courage to step into that under the umbrella because to tell the truth realization itself does not have name it does not have um, I mean, it does not have anything that one can put into the language for quite a while. There are phases of being utterly speechless about it. And I welcome everyone who cherishes these phases 
and harnesses these phases for as long as they could. Yeah. This, if only I could, um, whenever people ask, you know, when is the right time to teach? And people do ask. I've received, you know, I've awakened two years ago or five years ago, this intensity, this and that. I feel like I'm ready to go out, but something tells me, you know, the one who is already take, took the bull by the horn, they're already teaching. You can't stop them. This is also the, the perils of our time. These people are already creating communities. They're creating the um, massive followers. You know, this is the age and time. We kind of touched that in the way uh, how this probably is orchestrated by the um, karmic currents anyway, which we choose our teachers in the same way, but essentially is a reflection of our own uh, glories and, and idiosyncrasies. But when someone wishes to go out, I always say that how much time was given to integration? Because it's very easy to develop language for it. You know, you read two, three books, you have your favorite teacher, you hear them speaking, and then you've got the, there is, there it is. Yeah. You will have the language for it. And and you, you hear that, you see that. But the language has to rise, essentially, from that place of paravak. It has to rise where it is being pushed through your entire being, through your diaphragm into your chest as it's looming through your throat, and then only to be expressed through the vocal cords. And there you have that, which begins to vibrate the air around. Hmm. So when that comes from that depth, this is perhaps, this is perhaps a sign to open one's mouth, having something to say. So this, not sure where exactly am I uh, going to, because you confessed you don't know exactly where the question is, so it's all, I hope and sink, right? So we're just tentatively uh, touching up on something here. This sound, this shimmering ocean of sound, every form in its essence is sound condensed as matter. Mm -hmm. Every form, everything that has an, any appearance, the most refined, subtle, fragile appearance to the density of granite or any planet that is denser than the granite slab. All this is nothing but sound, and this is scientific reality. No one argues with that. It's, it's like arguing that the Earth is still flat. It kind of belongs to these arguments. We understand today that there are different ways of how to view reality. The scientist views reality in this way, and it has poetry to it. Yeah. Like John Hagelin, with whom I was also on the panel at my first appearance at Science and Non-Duality back in 2012. He is known for his investigations into the supersymmetry theories. And as we know that these three are the most cutting edge, or so have been so far, the superfluidity, the supersymmetry, and the superstring. So this perspective that everything is sound, and how the sound collapses essentially into patterns and how out of the myriad of patterns this interference patterns being born and within these interference patterns 
something appears, what we call then matter, something which then gains a solid appearance. This interference patterns, it's who we are in the form. This is our solar system and the whole known cosmos is the result of this interference patterns within otherwise, within otherwise incomprehensible vastness of pure silence. So the understanding, this is where Tantra is why so exciting, because it is precisely that methodology which found on these very understandings, on these very experiences, on these very principles, all the major tantric doctrines come and have direct relationship to this vak, to this teaching that everything is sound. It's this, um, you've mentioned earlier, Pratyabhijna Hritayam, but the doctrine of vibration, the Spanda Karikas, which is another very important Kashmir Shaiva scripture, it's that views the universe precisely in these terms, as the vibratory, vibratory field of pure awareness, at the, at the heart of all perception, it is that. Mm. And obviously, obviously, that is not belong to uh, individual being. It belongs to the awareness itself. It's indispensable property of awareness. And that's what the um, glory of this teaching is that to stepping into that realization, to being able to take that stand as consciousness that this essentially is my own essential nature. My reality is this reality. Everything that I perceive down, down to the senses is nothing other than the throat of my own awareness, quiver at the heart of my own consciousness. So, of course, this is just to trying to condense it to the uh, format of, of this discussion, which is a lovely challenge in itself. But if, if you see what I'm trying to say, that, that um, it's the mode of perception, just like in the double slit experiment, or which led to these breakthroughs in quantum physics, to these realizations where one way or the other, reality is indeterminable because we know the location, we don't know the, um, you know, the quality, what have you. If we know the, the quality, we don't know the location. In other words, wave versus particle. Yeah. So it is this at once being something particular made out of particles and at the same time being waves. This is, of course, maybe mind uh, cannot comprehend it immediately. But it is, it is what happens in the breakthroughs, in spiritual breakthroughs, in the what we call realizations. It is this beautiful dance, it is this beautiful oscillation between, between this ebb and flow, between being something in particular, this embodied jiva, this embodied soul, and at the same time, infinitude of waves. It's this wave and particle, indeterminate. Because if we know one, we don't know the other. It's this, so far, irreconcilable nature of this, remember? Mm. I often like to cite that 
Albert Einstein was actually most most chuffed not so much about what he's known for. <clears throat> he is the most excited about the fact that he was the one who presupposed that sunlight is both waves and particles. This led to the fundamental breakthroughs in, in the understanding in the scientific world of, of actual uh, reality in terms of its complexity, in terms of its essentially, um, this, is, this is in a way the end of the old paradigm, the total end of the Newtonian world. Yeah. Good riddance. So in that, yeah. <laughs> Good riddance to the Newtonian world. Um, so uh, what you're saying is really beautiful, and thank you for taking us on that exploration. I, I wanted to maybe bring it full circle and ask if the, um, the relate, you're speaking of this um, experience of being both the jiva and this infinity of waves or the oceanic, you know, vibration, is that sort of, you know, bringing things full circle, is that um, mentioning what you said before about the juncture or the gap is is the experience in between, so to speak, the that um, that particle and wave experience of the jiva and the and the infinite ocean. We might say is that is that kind of what you're getting at that that the experience is sort of in between those two realities, paradoxically. Yes, we could say that, um, for example, if we want to please the scholars of Tantra, or perhaps that would displease them, who knows, <laughs> and all the, the enthusiasts of, okay, let's be, let's be more careful here, yeah, let's, let's use the term enthusiast, let's, if we want to kind of uh, um, share something with the enthusiasts of Tantra, these aforementioned four levels of speech, which is very rich, very rich exposition known to all tantric um, scholars, obviously, and those who delved into tantra more than just an introductory level, beyond the introductory level, which, by the way, would be very um, good to remind ourselves that it's not exclusively tantric. Yeah. It's, it's actually uh, belongs to the whole Vedic tradition, it belongs yeah. to the Vedic sciences. Tantra itself originates from, from, from Veda. Mm -hmm. Tantra as a mythology as, uh, comes from Atharva Ved, from one of the four principal Vedas. It's the domain of the Atharva Ved, which is the least known of all the four principal Vedas. Um, the Rig Ved, the Sam Ved, the Yajurved and the Atharvaved. So the Atharvaved, this is why yes, scholars gives us rough dates, rough centuries, when the Tantra rose. From the 4th century, by the 10th century, we had some luminaries who gave us immortal accounts of you know, some of the Tantric uh, scriptures, and left some of their own most amazing works we can marvel today at. But Tantra did not arose uh, in, in, uh, around 4th century. It's an incorrect perspective. It's simply a scholarly perspective. And the job of a scholar, of course, to keep very closed up uh, or, 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 be in, or speak in vain of how everything fits within the history. Yeah. yeah. But Indian tradition uh, is Vedic. 
the basis of all Indian spirituality is Vedic. And Vedic uh, understanding of time is non-linear, it is concentric. Mm-hmm. And the Vedic uh, here understanding of the Vedas, that the Vedas did not arose at this or that time. Vedas are the compositions, essentially, which are of non-human origin. They were not composed because someone was hit by inspiration, although that is not a big harm to say that. It was a, certainly uh, a great hit, you know, still yeah. remains popular today, to this day, it must be a hit. So that when we speak of the Vedic understanding, the aham vedam, that expression, it's that sudden exclamation, realization that I am Veda, aham vedam, mm. I am Veda. Veda here stands for that essentially science, for that wisdom, for that knowledge, yeah. for that essentially which could be also called the universal law. It is that realization that even my molecular cellular structure, my nervous system is an expression of the Ved. It's an expression of the Ved, which is all expressed through sounds. And this took centuries to be composed. Rig Veda alone was composed throughout several centuries by the most modest estimation, mm-hmm. by several authors, of course, yeah. who were all, as we know, were rishis, they were all seers of reality, that they were able to tap into this refined states of consciousness to that primordial sound, where essentially they were able to bring out of these primordial sounds certain frequencies that were dressed into Sanskrit language as this or that hymn in, in Rig Veda. And the same goes for all the other Vedas. So Tantra as it were, has no human origin. We cannot say Tantra was born on the, you know, in fourth century because it was revolutionary teaching. It was revolutionary, but it was essentially re-evaluation of more ancient teachings, we could say. Yeah. And if we talk about more ancient teachings, we could say well, these were in turn re-evaluations of more ancient teachings. And there's no, you know, that goes at infinitum, that reductionism of into the past has no end. Yeah. We cannot find someone who one day gave us this. This is kind of like a little bit misperceiving, misunderstanding the essence of this um, wisdom. This wisdom is inherently our own. Yeah. It is vibrant in your own field just now as it is vibrant in mine just as it is vibrant in every listener. And that's what makes Veda, a Vedic spirituality, no more Indian than theory of relativity, Jewish. So therefore, this is what makes it so terribly um, universal, if you will. (laughs) It makes it terribly universal. It's like, yes, it's it's here to be taken because it's yours. You know, when you recognize, like, mm, nah, it's not, well, I'm Christian, uh, you know, what? well, I'm Muslim, my father is Muslim, so can, uh, I'm actually, well, I'm an atheist, what am I doing here? Okay, it's terribly interesting. And then suddenly we begin to feel, wait, wait a minute, this is who I am in my most essential nature. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I don't need to actually go in, to be wrapped in saffron robes, you know, I don't need to uh, grow my hair or shave my hair or have a tilaka on my forehead. All these are optional, right? I can smear myself in ashes or I can smear myself in sandal paste, whatever takes your fancy. <laughs> but, but the essence is that our reality is this is what this speak, these teachings address. So forgive me, I forgot, forgot your original No, no, I, you're, saying, you're, question, saying, but... you're saying a lot of interesting things. And one, um, one thing that I uh, like about you talking about the Vedas, <clears throat> you know, is not a sort of historical... Um, you know, uh, was something that someone had mentioned, or I was reading, someone had mentioned the idea about the Vedas sort of emerging as a written text in response to the Rishis kind of foreseeing the the rise of the Kali Yuga, and so we can sort of trace the beginning of the Kali Yuga to the beginning of the transcribing of texts, you know, because it was like the there that the the Kali Yuga is the, you know, the age of this kind of disbursement and dissolving of 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 the of the connection to this wisdom. And so in order to find some way to preserve it in, you know, in whatever small way it could be preserved during the Kali Yuga was was so that so it wasn't that they were written in response to kind of a um, uh, an evolution of technology, but rather that seeing that this was going to be the only way that they could be preserved in, in this time of you know darkness, I guess. Um, well, I'm 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 not sure if I'm fully understanding this perspective. Not that I don't understand where it comes from. I should perhaps say I'm not sure if I fully share this perspective. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that there could be an alternative perspective. That. Well, first of all, uh, Vedas were not written down, they were composed, yeah, yeah. right? As we've agreed earlier that there were oral transmissions, they were composed and they were recited. They were written down much later simply as a necessity to have it written down as a monument, as a literally monument, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which happened to all cultures. Um, let's look at it maybe also from an alternative view. How about if we see the rise of these hymns through the enlivened neurophysiological structures of the rishis, where for the sole purpose of singing the glory of their own realized essence and it is therefore both most profound most profound spiritual teaching and and a greatest work of art if ever there was composed one yeah after all for centuries of attempts to decode Rig Ved post post so many scholars so many troubles so many arguments. There is this wonderfully, beautifully kind of uh, upheld understanding now, at least among some, that Rig Ved is nothing other than greatest hymn to Shakti ever sung. The, everything that is spoken in Rig Ved, all these deities, all these rites, all these sacrifices, all these offerings that 
aim to sacrifice, you know, to satisfy, the, you know, to quench the thirst of gods so that the gods are happy and then in turn sustain us. All this esoteric language, all this filtering the soma, right, through the cotton wool, all this filtering the soma endlessly so that the gods can be, can be satisfied. Have been seen by many scholars as you know that there was even this reductionistic perspective that it's just because early Aryan Aryans or the early Indian civilization was you know settled civilization from maybe phase of being nomads and then they were entirely dependent on the livestock. So all these verses are to reassure essentially this um, symbiotic relationship with nature were dependent on that livestock. But this is such a reductionistic, such a kind of like, I, I would say, um, narrow understanding where we have given, uh, and, and we have these amazing accounts coming from those who have deciphered the meaning of these verses, the meaning of this, right? The suktas composed into hymns, arranged into hymns, which is nothing other than exalted, exalted attempt at singing the glory of this process of realizing our central nature. So it is actually a hymn, hymn, hymn to this mother divine, hymn to Shakti itself. The, the, here, here, the, all together, it's the whole process, the whole process of self-realization. The whole yogas are here, mm-hmm. though the yog, the words, the terms yoga, you would not find them in Rig Veda. The term Kundalini, you would not find this in Rig Veda. Yeah. But the whole process is that one process of alchemical transformation. And that final, final somic phase, that lunar phase of, of this trinkling soma, the soma pavamana, like the ninth and the tenth mandalas, which are all dedicated to the Soma Pavamana, which is essentially that lunar aspect, Nectarian aspect, which is known to all those who have studied yogic tradition, that is the the very final goal of yoga is to be able to taste the nectar of one's own immortality, as we are in the physical body. So there are different perspectives. All these Vedic hymns don't have to be necessarily as uh, survival tools, if you will, you know, like survival guidelines in the, in the hard times, yeah. but they're just as appropriate in golden age as it is now in, yeah. the, uh, in the iron age. No, I want to I want to clarify what I what I meant because I think I, I must I didn't communicate it well. So I think that the guy the the idea wasn't that um, that they were composed for the 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 Kali Yuga. I think he what we were saying was that yeah they were they were composed and they're eternal but they were written down for the sake of the I, the the for the kali yuga which you know is was sort of a, a fine point but anyway um so one thing that i wanted to ask you because i i love that we're sort of ending you know nearing the end of our conversation at the beginning in a certain kind of way with the veda um uh but i'm just curious personally you know um because seeing as you do tracing these traditions Back to the Veda, you know, there's a lot of traditions that take their cue from a kind of critique of the Veda. I'm thinking Buddhism and, and some other traditions. Um, and you could say Samkhya, you know, from a certain perspective would be a, a, a kind of rejection of, of the kind of ritualized 
um, what they see as like the the empty rituals of the you know the the Vedic um, the Brahmins. So what what is the status of you know based on what you're saying as you know, it, it's connected to the Veda in this way, and it's all there. <clears throat> then, what is the status of those traditions that are that are critiquing um, the Veda? Is are they critiquing a certain idea that they have about the Veda based on a historical juncture, or is there something else there? Um, well, first of all, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm qualified to to respond to that. After all, I don't uh, claim to be a scholar. So this is, I'd like to make it very clear that I cannot really speak in any authoritative uh, terms uh, about these matters, right? Okay. Um, however, since you've asked, <laughs> I'll, 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 give it a, I'll, I'll give it a try. Perhaps distinction simply needs to be uh, drawn between what this stands were made for rather than against yeah so in other words the stands were not made against veda or vedic knowledge certainly not but it's again is that reevaluating that what is known as eternal way eternal law eternal religion eternal truth, that sanatana, sanatana dharma, and the core is always what is relevant in any given moment in time. So at the time of Buddha, it was relevant to separate the wheat from the chaff and to point directly what is all this science of union is about. So it's not so much about the elaborateness of the ritual. It's not so much about the elaborateness of the way the offering is performed. And there's very little value in that if that offering is not being experienced firsthand here. Yeah. It became, as it were, objectified in the outer ritual. Yeah. So we could say Buddha makes this radical departure where he exalts the nature of nirvana, the action in freedom from the binding influences of karma. It's essentially, first of all, it's that to be in freedom is considered to be that nirvana here also could easily be misinterpreted. It's not extinguishing the world. I'm sorry, this is why I said I'm not a scholar, so please don't crucify me for saying something here, some will find blasphemous. But what Buddhism was turned into is not necessarily what Buddha taught. Yeah. We cannot really be sure uh, what was Buddha's stand on non-self and whether he indeed exalted and installed the teaching of Shunyata, Shunya, that Buddhism is known for. Of course, there are different perspectives. Buddhism is so rich, so rich and so diverse. There's Madhyamika, there is Zen Buddhism, there's so many different types. There's Tibetan Buddhism, which is a totally different story. But we can uh, certainly see that the 
essence of Buddha's teaching was an emphasis on nirvana, which itself, which also, also can be misinterpreted, uh, that nirvana represents here extinguishing this worldly existence. Nirvana is that freedom. So in other words, it's not extinguishing the flame of individual existence, as sometimes it is in interpreted, but rather extinguishing this pseudo-identification where one attributes, it's in, in a way, it's in continuation of the yogic teaching on the essence of karma yoga, but taught in a revolutionary way. With, in view of other historical figures, uh, like you've, you've asked why, the, you know, the, no one really was like, the Buddhist teaching is steeped in, in, in Vedic, in Vedic philosophy, steeped, literally, inseparable from. And it is, it's a matter of fact, this, this will be a kind of even, not, not even, um, it will be a waste of time trying to find where Buddha went wrong or where we, he was right, you know, trying to, this is uh, culture itself, tradition itself absorbs Buddha into the pantheon of these incarnations of the principles responsible for the preservation of Dharma. We know him to be one of the Mahavatars. We know Buddha to be one of the incarnations of Vishnu. Vishnu is that principle which is responsible for the sustenance. So he comes here to break in order to sustain, join, sustain. Mm. So they're just like my two cents. Yeah, no, that's. I think that's a really beautiful description of that kind of process, and I like, I like the idea of thinking of it not as breaking from, but doing something in order to preserve or affirming something that maybe in the kind of you know, cultural environment is get, you know, things are getting ossified. And so a kind of freshness needs to be brought based on whatever's happening. So I think that's really, that's a really uh, fruitful way to think about it. So, you know, we're, we've been talking quite a while now, and it's been such a wonderful conversation. I just, I've been going a little longer than my normal interviews because you, because this has been so fascinating. Um, so I'm trying to think of like the best note to end on. And, um, and, 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 you know, we've talked about the Veda now, and, and you talk about, I, I guess I'll just ask a question that I'm interested in hearing about, because I sort of feel this way a little bit, and it's sort of a cultural question, and also, um, and also a metaphysical question, but, you know, the, t the path of the heart, um, as, you know, is, as, as, as a way of describing this, um, you know, this, this path is, you mentioned in one of the interviews, the written interview, about how this is not to be confused with emotionality. And, and, and I really, I, I, this is something that I, in my own, you know, experience conversations with people, I've often slapped up against this, is that there seems to be a confusion between, you know, the, the, the heart, you know, what the heart represents, and this kind of I love the, using the word emotionality about it. And, and, and so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, you know, when we're talking about the sacred heart or the heart of recognition or, or the heart of reality and, and our intimacy with that, it's not this kind of superficial emotionality that we sometimes see in, I don't want to like, you know, criticize any traditions, but there are certain like devotional traditions that seem very, you know, hung up on this idea that it's, you know, this emotional roller coaster up and down, crying, screaming, all of this stuff. 
Whereas this, where I, I feel like what you're teaching is a little more subtle than that, or there's something more, um, yeah, there's something more subtle about that. So if you want to talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, you must have encountered that uh, additional line there, that uh, the path of the heart is not for the faint-hearted. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a, it's a, an, an important reminder, in my view, for those who feel perhaps affinity on hearing about that. And I welcome that question very much because it's a very important, very important distinction. In fact, the path of the heart. If some people think that this is all, oh, that's great. That's you know, it sounds much better. You know, like in order to walk the path of Guiana, the path of intellectual discrimination requires so much knowledge, requires so much uh, study. Then the path of the heart is is a different path. Because we could hear that, yes, of course, that in the richness of different methodologies, in the richness of different traditions, and in, within these traditions, there are always different paths. The, you know, the truth is one, right? Or the, the paths are many of these sayings. I don't, yeah. I cannot exactly say the way. The truth is uh, one, uh, paths are many. Yeah. Yeah, something along these lines. But uh, though, though, no matter how many of these paths, we can narrow them down, right? There are, after all, still, still something which then could be called a path. And there are distinctively defined paths to oneness that work because of certain reasons. And the path of the heart is could be, if one want to have this most impressive immediate understanding, is that if we then, after we have spoken, let's say, if we had more time on different paths, and if we wanted to then classify them somehow, then we will inevitably have two most distinctive most important paths, as it were, which run parallel, in parallel to um, to this, essentially, what then becomes our chosen. Sometimes we can choose it, sometimes it chooses us, it makes no difference. And that is the path of discrimination, perhaps could be called uh, Guiana Marga, right, the path of wisdom the path of intellectual discrimination and the path of Hridiyamarga, which is the path of indiscrimination. Mm. And so the path of discrimination versus the path of indiscrimination. One is the path where we dissect everything, we dissect everything, we never settle in. It requires tremendous force and maturity of intellect, not just mind. Mind has to be subordinate. One has one essentially it's a we're speaking about <laughs> I don't know, beings like Arjuna, okay? We're speaking about these heroes of the of these scriptures. It's, it requires an evolved being. Mm -hmm. It requires an evolved being, evolved. 
mentally, psychologically, and then this intellectual approach is where one essentially is refines this feather to the degree where every final layer is being peeled off. But the path of the heart is of a different kind. The path of the heart is the path of indiscrimination. In other words, it's the path where the main methodology is all-embracing aspect rather than discriminating aspect, mm. rather than dissecting one embracing it. And it's very different in its nature. Yeah. Very different because you hear a lot these days, well, not just these days, there's a lot of teachers who emphasize the so-called shadow work, right? Uh, the necessity for psychological maturity, obviously, is a prerequisite. Yeah. We, we cannot say that as, that is not. And that uh, prerequisite, you know, requires uh, sometimes, uh, essentially, fully, fully become aware of all one's patterns in terms of all these mishaps, all these blind spots. It's inevitable. And uh, the inner work, the so-called inner work, the shadow work, in the path of the heart, the approach is different. Not that one is advised to bypass this, not at all. But in the in 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 the indiscriminate approach, what is important here is that first and foremost understanding that the heart already contains it all. Yeah. In other words, it's a, again, it's also a non-dual path. Non-dual path, this Advaita path that the path of the heart exemplifies, takes the stance of non-rejecting anything and embracing everything. So in other words, every shade, every minute shade, everything is being here recognized as various different shades of the totality of one's being. If you just contemplate for a moment, all of us, if we contemplate for a moment, that's quite, quite uh, also, well, to me, this is not a trivial kind of uh, thing too. This is why uh, when people first respond very favorably towards the path of the heart, because it sounds good, and uh, you, you called it also earlier when you were structuring the question that, uh, beyond the emotionality and excessive kind of like romantical ideas and romanticizing what the path of the heart could be uh, all the way, you know, one can easily confuse the path of the heart with the soap opera of, of going around of the, the circles web. Of the web. With, the so with the soap opera. Oh, a soap opera. Yes. Yeah. You know, like just going around the circles with the same stuff. Well, it's all part of my heart, right? It's so like it's all embracing here. Mm -hmm. So of course, these uh, distinctive uh, pathways they they have territories which are overlapping, but the path of the heart here is characterized by this this indiscriminate nature of one's essential reality, which uh, the heart here equates essentially with God, with love, 
And the main methodology here is grace, the, song, the power of grace, the force, the, the major force of love. It's that what transforms us. And again, when we speak of love here, we don't speak of love as an emotion. We speak of love as that most powerful wave within consciousness, which essentially, though it's a wave, it contains the magnanimity of the ocean itself. And yes, we can speak of the different channels, how the love can run through these individualized channels. And all of them are expressions of this universal love. But when it comes to the realization of our essential nature, the path of the heart exemplifies these very qualities, all embracing qualities. If you will, uh, I personally view the tantric path as the path of the heart. And to me, this the, the tantric teaching, as far as I see this in the exposition of its major, major masters and, and major figures, most influential figures, they all taught that the core is in the heart. And this is why I feel also um, very free in terms of the spiritual discourses. As soon as I feel that someone begins to feel too tantric, I, I can, I, I, I'm in no time put on my Sufi hat, you know, because it's... Uh, yeah, because as soon as we start forming conceptual ideas, we are in danger. Yeah. yeah, we lost the point exactly, and, and and it is this: the path of the heart. You know, with everything that I said to you, is it's like the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Mm. So it cannot be talked about. It can only be actually experienced. This is why. Um, that's why it is the path of the heart. Yeah. No, it, it, it's literally where everything, every experience is reconciled at the very core of our being, and that is the heart. Yeah. It's not the physical heart, it's not the Anahata Chakra, it's the seat of consciousness. All prana gathers here. All pranic flows gather here. People speak about awakening here or there, right? You know, in all awakenings, there is the internalization of prana, and prana always internalized in the heart, in the deep sleep consciousness, when we go to sleep in a dreamless state, the prana is guarded in the heart. It happens on a daily basis. And if that is true to the just that relative, because waking, dreaming, deep sleep are relative states of consciousness, they have rise and end. They have the duration. So much, so, so much more for that transcendence and that heart as the seat of consciousness, as the seat of all the pranas. It's the heart of all that we experience, all perception, ebb and flow from here. Mm. The very subject and object is born outside as that wave that comes from the heart and returns to the heart. So this is really, the part of the heart is also far from just abstract kind of feeling and uh, the emotion, the emotion here to rehabilitate. So some listeners don't jump to into conclusions. Emotions here is the methodology as well. Feeling is a methodology as well here. Everything is. How could it be otherwise? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's really beautiful. What a great note to end on. 
So, Igor, this has been such a fascinating and beautiful conversation. Thank you so much for offering your time to speak with me. Um, I know my our listeners are really going to enjoy this interview. Um, so just to close, I just wanted to offer you an opportunity to um, tell us a little bit about, you know, any programs, retreats, trainings, anything that you're um, up to that you might want to share with our audience. Well, the most important program is that we are working towards creation of spiritual centers. This yeah. is really, this is this is the, the main program. All the rest is just, you know, if people are interested, if people are uh, found this in any, in any way um, inspiring, then there is a website link and people can go into events page. To tell the truth, I, I cannot tell you the dates and things because I don't just don't remember them. I know that I'm traveling in, in less than two weeks time. I'm going to uh, Los Angeles and I'm going to be away for two and a half months. Okay. I'm going to be away. So we, uh, there are plenty of events planned, but it's all on the website. So and really... The, and the website the, is um, Igor Kufayev. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, it's just that. It's igorkufayev.com. Mm -hmm. It's my name and puntocom.com. Uh, and uh, everything is there, really. But okay. since you gave me this airtime, I, I wanted to... The program is not so much what happens in this workshop, in that workshop. You see, I'd, I'd like to take this airtime for... That <laughs> all this, essentially, is towards establishing these units where this ongoing researches into consciousness can be conducted. Yeah. And, so, no much need yeah so where so where are these centers so far um, being um, created well at the moment they vibrate in the frequency of a subtle realm yeah and we are eagerly awaiting for that to collapse into the physical reality yeah so if any listeners who have been in any way inspired can essentially spread the word then that would uh, speed up the process. Yeah, absolutely. But, but the geographical locations, if you're asking about, that we're planning to have something in, in California mm -hmm. and uh, in Europe, uh, most likely it will be somewhere in Central Europe, Belgium, Holland, Germany, France, Switzerland, mm -hmm. like, you know, anywhere in Europe, it's fine. We don't uh, have any preferences in terms you of... You don't, dis you don't discriminate. No, all embracing, no, all embracing path of the heart. <laughs> you got it. So, um, uh, then, uh, are you ever, are you going to be in New York or on the East coast at all? Uh, not just yet, unless you're going to organize something and we'll jump on the occasion. Yeah, I think we should. Uh, but, we should <laughs> <laughs> well, we welcome that wholeheartedly. At the moment, the work is mainly kind of, we're going to the same places because there is already um, a, a pattern yeah. in terms of um, the places we run these programs and the programs are, you know, they, we haven't spoken about this, but they require a certain, um, it's not just retreat where people come and listen, obviously, these are transformative workshops where a lot happens and a lot of phenomena. These workshops are accompanied by phenomena and so far we came up with a format which essentially is a week long with optional uh, three days of a spillover as a integration cushioning period. But a week, week long is a must. And of course, I offer the kind of a two or three hour darshans and uh, weekend uh, introduction workshops for people to taste this work. 
but all this is so far only in California, British Columbia, and Europe. So we will Excellent. welcome any opportunity to go anywhere else where we are invited. It's just as simple as that. All right. Well, we're going to have to we're going to have to make that happen in New York because I think that the community here would really connect with your teachings. So, thank you so much, Igor. It's been a real pleasure. No, it's the, the joy is all mine. I'm sorry, Jacob. <laughs> the joy is mine. <laughs> Delight is all mine. All right. All right. Thank have you. Bye-bye. Thank you.